BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, hello. Good to see you again. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, as you know, America is so hopelessly politically divided these days that some politicians, notably Marjorie Taylor Greene, have said we're heading to a national divorce. But in The Atlantic magazine, political analyst Ron Brownstein argues just the opposite. We're not heading to a national divorce. He says we're already there. Over a dozen states, Brownstein points out, MAGA states are already separating from traditional American policies and values as part of what he's identified as a soft secession. And that's reflected in the makeup of Congress. You want to know why the House of Representatives doesn't work anymore? Look at the difference between Republican and Democratic districts in terms of racial diversity and the level of higher education. So where does that leave the Republican Party and the Democratic Party heading into 2024? Ron Brownstein, whom you read in The Atlantic and see often on CNN, joins us today to talk more about what he calls the four quadrants of American politics. Ron Brownstein, uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Bill, good to be with you. Good to be on the Bill Press pod. <laughs> okay. You so, know, all these iterations, right? I mean, you know, I, I've been with you on radio, on television, you know, and it's kind of... That's, kinda, that's yeah. what we do, and here Rod. We, are. We, re- we reinvent ourselves, right? <laughs> we filter through a chat bot. <laughs> yeah. So um, I want to ask you, um, your most recent piece in The Atlantic, You you really dig into the deep divides in the House, you and your researchers there at the Atlantic, calling it the four quadrants that make up of the House, yeah. which explains why it's so badly divided today. Tell us a little bit about what you find. Yeah, this is something uh, I've been doing uh, really looking back since 2009 and trying to look at the underlying demographics of the districts that Republicans and Democrats hold in the House. And Bill, if you do it over time, it really gives you a picture of the you know evolution of the two coalitions and the extent to which we are looking at what I've called a, a class inversion in American politics. Um, basically, we look at the, we look at a lot of different dimensions of of the uh, of the demography of the districts, which you can do through the census. Bureau, things like immigration, the median income, number of people without insurance, a number of seniors. But the core of what we do is we divide all the districts into four quadrants, whether they are above or below the national level of racial diversity, uh-huh. uh, which is about 40 percent, 40 percent currently of, of, uh, of the population are people of color. And then we further divide them by whether the share of whites in the district with a college degree is higher or lower than the national level, which is 36%. And basically, if you do that that way, you, you, you end up with four quadrants, districts that are more diverse and better educated than average, districts that are more diverse and less educated, districts that are less diverse and more educated, and then really, <laughs> right. and then really critical is the last one, districts that are less diverse 
and have fewer college graduates than average. Um, and that last quadrant, districts that are have fewer racial minorities than average and have fewer white college graduates than average, that has become the overwhelming center of the Republican Party. I mean, when I first started doing this, um, there were Republicans held 20 more seats than Democrats in that grouping back in 2009. Remember, there were a lot yeah. of blue dogs back yeah. then. Yeah. They're, they're, the John Spratts and the Ike Skeltons and the John Tanners. And I don't remember if Mirtha was still in the Congress then, but, it, you know, basically that kind of district. Well, today, well, in 2010 was the big change. And those blue dogs were just wiped out in the Tea Party election of 2010. And it hasn't really changed. The Republican Party today is overwhelmingly centered on this one kind of district, which is white, heavily blue collar. The Republicans have 142 of those districts now, and Democrats just 21. Wow. Right. So the lead has gone from 20 to 120. Wow. But also looking at it the other way, that is two thirds of all the Republican seats in the House. And mm. in fact, we calculated that half of all of Donald Trump's total votes came from those districts. Okay. So this explains a lot about why the center of gravity in the Republican Party has moved from the kind of economic focus when, uh, you know, uh, back in the 80s with Ronald Reagan, uh, small government, lower taxes, et cetera, to the unremitting culture war of Trump and DeSantis. That is overwhelmingly the base of the party. In fact, many of the most you know volatile members of the of the Republican conference, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, Scott Perry, uh, Ralph Norman, who call for martial law, you'll remember, they represent those kind of districts. Now, conversely, the core the Democratic Party is not nearly, and this really reflects what we know, Democratic mm -hmm. Party is more of a coalition. It isn't as dependent on any one of these four groupings, but right. the biggest single grouping for Democrats are the polar opposite. They, they are districts that are high in diversity and high in education. And Democrats have 98 of those 113 districts. Many of the most prominent Democrats, Nancy Pelosi has a district like that. Uh, uh, Hakeem Jeffries has a district like that. Uh, AOC has a district like that. That is the core of the Democratic Party. So you see through this, uh, a Democratic Party that, like its presidential coalition, is diverse, well-educated, metro-based, and a Republican coalition that now overwhelmingly revolves around non-college, non-urban whites. Now, how does that? How is that reflected in the American population uh, among those districts? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, so so basically, I mean. Part of the, like, like I said, I mean, 40% uh, uh, of the population is now non-white. 36% of whites have a college degree. And the challenge Democrats have is that they do best in districts that are above the national average on either of those measures, much less both, that right. are more diverse than, than average uh, and or more white college graduates than average. Uh, the problem they've got is that those districts in either of those categories are still a minority of all districts. You know, most in most districts, the white share of the population is higher than the national average. There are more districts with white 
with, with a higher white share of the population than there are districts with a lower white share of the population. And the same thing is true a little more narrowly on education. So on balance, you know, the uh, to me, the big my big overall takeaway from this is that it is very hard for either side to get very far ahead in Congress the way it is currently situated, because mm. each side has such impregnable demographic strongholds that until the one or the other shows the ability to win behind that enemy terrain, uh, it is probably going to stay pretty close. I mean, we've had back to back 222 seat majorities, which is extraordinary. Uh, and 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 the House may be going in the same direction as the Senate, where the majorities are getting narrower and therefore control is becoming uh, more tenuous. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the big conclusion. But I think within that, on balance, Republicans do have a slight edge in that Democrats probably have to win a few more seats that demographically tilt red in order to get a majority than Republicans have to win seats that tilt blue in order to get a majority. But looking ahead, aren't, aren't the demographics changing to the extent that they will favor Democrats? Right. Well, yeah. So the society is becoming better educated and more diverse. Right. Right. So over time, and, and you see that reflected in the, uh, you know, the presidential race, uh, uh, most clearly. I mean, Donald Trump won about the same share of white voters without a college degree as in 2016 as Ronald Reagan did in 1984, right? And so Ronald Reagan won 59% of the vote. And what did Trump win? Like, just under 47% of the vote. So obviously, the electorate has changed quite a bit. It's grown more diverse and more educated. And Democrats, you know, uh, are strong with both of those groups, even though there is evidence of Republican gains with culturally conservative uh, voters of color, particularly Hispanic men. Um, uh, so over time, more there are more districts that are more diverse, and there are more districts that are better educated. Um, uh, but Having said that, with redistricting, you can blunt that in mm. a way that mm -hmm. you can't at the presidential level. I mean, look at what happened in Tennessee. You know, they cut Na Nashville, you know, is the growing part of the state. And it's, you know, kind of a blue, you know, the blueberry and the tomato soup, as uh, as Molly Ivins used to say, I think, of, uh, <laughs> of Austin. Um, uh, but they cut it up you know, into three pie slices so that it was always submerged in a rural white majority. So in redistricting, you can hold this off a little longer than you can at the presidential level. Um, and so I, I think in this decade, at least, um, you know, there are examples of what you're describing, like, for example, the seat that Gerald Connolly now holds yeah. in Virginia was originally designed to be a Republican seat. And in fact, was held by Tom Davis, who's a brilliant guy who ran the NRCC. Uh, but it got more diverse and Democrats won it. And, you know, it has become a solidly Democratic seat since. And there are Texas seats that you could see somewhat evolving in that in that direction in this decade. But redistricting blunts this in a way that it doesn't at the presidential level and allows basically creates a situation where Democrats, I think, do have to find a way. Like if you look at um, the, the toss up seats for 2024 in the Cook ratings, mm -hmm. uh, I think two thirds of them have more whites in it than the national average, two thirds of the districts. And I think a majority of them have fewer white college graduates than the national average. Um, so Democrats have to win and protect some of the, I mean, there are only 21 Democrats left, as I said, in the House in these districts that are heavily white, heavily blue collar. They got to they got to keep that number from going down to 15 in 24. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, 24 uh, could be 
you know, a, a uh, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this separately. I mean, by so much of Biden's political focus, so much of his economic agenda is about clawing back just a few points among those non-college, non-urban and older whites. And if he succeeds, those Democrats should be fine. If he doesn't, the, the Democratic share of those seats could go down even further. Uh, and uh, that could offset what I think will likely be Democratic gains in the suburban seats held by Republicans. I mean, right. you know, this general class inversion is just it just has a lot of topspin. You know, it just general. I mean, I just think it just we, we will continue to see broadly speaking, at every level, Democratic gains in the white collar suburbs and the question of whether Biden can can uh, can augment that by preventing Republicans from just dominating these blue collar non-urban areas is is an enormous one. Well, it seems to me there are two at least two things that 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 you can conclude from this. Right. Just from your summary of it. One is it explains which policies and and which what their priorities are for Republicans in Congress, right? Why they focus on the issues that they do, and secondly, it it, it pretty much reflects why Congress doesn't work, right? Yeah, 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 you know, you know, right? We are, you know, we are seeing. Look, you know, there used to be a theory. Uh, you remember uh, Mofi Arena and others at Stanford. Uh, not to pick on Mo, who's a great political scientist, but like they argued that uh, the public wasn't polarized. It was just the politicians were more polarized than the public. And, and there's some evidence for that. But by and large, uh, you know, we are we are we're living through this enormous sorting out. And where Steve Israel, the former DCCC chair, said to me in this story today, you know, it's not like these people are coming from different counties. It's like they're coming from different planets. You know, I mean, if you're, if you're you're talking about a Republican Party that is overwhelmingly centered in these, uh, you know, more less dense, more white, more blue collar, very few immigrants, lower middle income districts and a Democratic Party that is essentially the opposite on all of those fronts. They are interacting all day with constituents who have a very different vision of what America is and should be. And so it is kind of understandable uh, to some extent how we have gotten uh, as divided as we are. I think the, the place where the public, or at least a piece of the public gets off the bus is that um, there's no doubt that what Democrats and Republicans want and what they envision as the problems facing the country now are just enormously divergent. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we do ourselves no favors by downplaying or minimizing that. The difference is, I think that there is a bigger share of the public who is willing to say, you know what, I disagree with people every day. I disagree with my spouse, my kids, my neighbor, my business partner, the people I work with. And I know we've got to work it out. Like, you can't just say, yeah. I disagree and therefore... I hate you. We're going to get, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to separate. Uh, I think the public is probably more willing for, for the political system to, to find some kind of compromise than the politicians themselves are. But the, the sorting out is really an enormous centrifugal pressure on our system because they, if, if you look at the data in my story today, they are representing very different countries. I mean, yeah. over 80% of the, over 80% of the house Republicans are in districts, or almost exactly 80% are in districts where there are fewer minorities than average. And three quarters are in districts where there are fewer white college graduates than average. Uh, and then for Democrats, it's 60% are in districts with more minorities than average, and three quarters in districts with more white college graduates. I mean, it's very different worlds they are representing. Yeah, it, explain, it explains a lot. But to push back a little bit, I, I was stunned, st stunned by this poll I saw uh, that Axios did yesterday. Uh, they reported 
that one fifth of Americans, so 20%, said, you know, we're not talking about a, uh, the possibility of a national divorce, right? They say they would support a national divorce. 66 million people, uh, which uh, Axios pointed out, that's the population of Texas, Wyoming, West Virginia, yeah. North Carolina, um, or North Dakota, I guess, Oklahoma. Idaho, Arkansas, Kentucky, South Dakota, Alabama, mm. Georgia, and Nebraska combined said they'll support a national divorce today. So we're already there, aren't we? Yeah, there is. Look, I mean, there's no question that the strains of holding this together as one country are as profound now as they have been at any point since the 60s and the question is whether it's the 1960s or the uh, 1860s um and i would say that you know the phrase that i have used sometimes is that we are experiencing a kind of soft secession already on the part of the red states i mean there are 23 states where republicans have unified control of government and since 2021 they have moved with unbelievable uh, aggression. I mean, unbelievably aggressively to set their own rules on a whole range of civil rights and civil liberties. I mean, you know, everything from abortion to LGBTQ rights to voting uh, to guns. Um, I, you know, I have written repeatedly that what we're watching is an attempt to roll back the rights revolution that began in the 60s, which was a process by which Congress and especially the Supreme Court nationalized more rights you know, civil rights, uh, contraception, abortion, Title IX, Americans with Disability Act. And we generally went through six decades of re re restricting the capacity of states to differ from that national baseline of rights. And now we are the red states are very determined to move in the opposite direction. And the combination, I, I, I in a December 80, uh, 2021 piece, I wrote that we have this basically tripartite axis where you have the red state legislators and governors, you have the Republican majority on the Supreme Court, and you have Republicans in, in the Senate using the filibuster to basically allow them to unravel the rights revolution and block efforts by Democrats in, the, in Congress to restore a national framework of rights on voting or abortion or LGBTQ issues. Um, and so that is very real. I mean, and that is gaining momentum. And, and you know, th this Supreme Court is not going, and very, highly unlikely the Supreme Court is going to say, you know, you can't do don't say gay and you can't ban CRT and, you know, these voting restrictions are too much. Uh, I don't see that happening. And as long as the filibuster is there, you know, even if Democrats have unified control of government, as they did in 21-22, they can't push back against this by passing national legislation, restoring these rights in every state. And even if they did, the Supreme Court might challenge that. But absent that, you know, we are watching, uh, a, a, you know, there's almost this loud cry from the red states of we are, you know, we are pulling out of your vision of what rights and liberties look like. And the fact that there was so little pushback against this in the red states in the midterm election mm -hmm. has only emboldened them. You know, there was a real dichotomy in this election between uh, purple states and blue states that very emphatically said no to this agenda 
particularly on banning abortion, uh, and red states where the governors who actually did ban abortion didn't really seem to suffer much, whether it was DeSantis or Abbott or Kemp, uh, you know, all of this, I mean, they, you know, uh, Brian Kemp signed a six-week ban on abortion and won over 70% of white women. Um, so the red states kind of shrugged, the purple and blue states said no, and I think that will just widen the divergence. So where does that lead the Republican Party today? I want to ask you about the Democratic Party later. Where does that lead, in your mind, the Republican Party today? United? Divided? Uh, it, it, I mean, look, we've seen a lot of back and forth on, over Ukraine and Donald Trump's role in January 6th in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, are they trying to <laughs> figure out which path they're going to go down, the MAGA path or the non-MAGA path? Yeah, and and I and I don't think the non-MAGA path can win. So the the question, you know, the, to me, the central question has been how many of those Republicans uneasy with this direction, this kind of nationalist culture war, nationalist economics, uh, you know, with you know, modern uh, proto-isolationist withdrawal from the world, uh, anti-immigration, and then this intense culture war at home. Um, you know, that is the heart of the party at this point. Yep. You know, I have, I have just, in 2012, after the election in 2012, I wrote that, um, you know, we now have a coalition of restoration and a coalition of transformation, right? I mean, that the Republican Party is now centered on the people and the places who are the most uncomfortable with the way the country is changing demographically, culturally, and even economically. And the Democratic Party overwhelmingly revolves now around the people and places that are most comfortable with the way it is, most comfortable with those changes as reflected in the in what we were just talking about earlier, that they are the party of kind of metro diverse, info age, well-educated America. And the Republican Party is uh, the party of the voters and places who feel either threatened or excluded or marginalized by all of those changes. And, you know, um, this is the direction of the party. And it, it certainly has contributed to what we've seen since the Clinton era of the realignment of white collar suburbs toward the Democrats. And conversely, the realignment of uh, non-college, you know, small town, rural, exurban America toward toward the Republicans. The Republicans are hoping that they can make further inroads among culturally conservative non-white voters, particularly Latinos, particularly mm -hmm. men, particularly Latino Protestants, right? Evangelical um, uh, Latinos. Um, uh, but they, as we saw in the midterm, I think if, if the level of of pushback or recoil from this agenda in white collar suburbs above the Mason-Dixon line, and even to some extent in Georgia, certainly Arizona, um, I don't think they can win those states at mm -hmm. that level of, 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 I mean, you know, if, 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 if suburban voters in Michigan view Ron DeSantis as as much a threat to their abortion rights as uh, Tudor Dixon, he will not win. Um, I, I, it, you cannot make it add up if you if, if the Democrats are starting to win 57, 58 percent of college whites. Look at Gretchen Whitmer's numbers in uh, both Grand Rapids, which I think is Kent County and Oakland County. I, you know, she also did a little better in the blue collar side. But but those white collar numbers or uh, Tony Evers in Wisconsin and certainly uh, Fetterman and uh, Shapiro in Pennsylvania, in the suburbs right, of Philadelphia, right. in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. So. You know, it's already happening, but I do wonder whether Ukraine in particular uh, could 
further strain this because, I mean, you know, you have 75 percent of the Republican electorate now backing candidates in, in DeSantis and, and Trump who are basically saying we're going to leave it to Putin. You know, we're going to we're going to yeah. we're going to abandon them. And I don't know. I mean, does that allow Biden to win a few points more among ordinarily Republican leaning college whites who don't want to ban abortion in the anyway? Like, it's just like one more, you know, it's like one more brick on the load. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and you could imagine, I mean, it isn't hard for me to imagine Biden doing a little better among college whites in in 24 than he did in 20, even though his his personal overwhelming political focus is on those non-college voters. I mean, that's where that's where he's focused. Everything he does is about gaining even just incrementally with those voters. That may be hard. Um, but the other side, I could see moving further away from the Republicans in this uh, iteration of the party, definition of the party. Well, Ron, the other poll that really struck me uh, last week was a poll CNN took just among Republican voters asking them, would you rather have a candidate you agreed with on the issues or a candidate who can win, who can beat Joe Biden? Mm-hmm. And 59 percent of Republicans said they'd rather have a candidate that they agree with on the issues. Only 41% said they wanted somebody who could beat Joe Biden. What the hell is that all about? Well, look, uh, if you believe, uh, if I am right, that the core motivation, the glue holding together the Republican coalition at this point is the view among the vast majority of its voters that Democrats are transforming the country into something unrecognizable, uh, that they are uprooting the country from its traditions and values, uh, then that is not really something you can compromise to. And, you know, that that and look, Trump is that is Trump's message. I mean, he tells them over and over again, as he did at the CPAC speech, if I lose, you won't have a country anymore. Um, yeah. And uh. and so, you know, voters who who hear that message and respond to that message, um, you know, they're not really worried as much about what is electorally viable. They feel like they're in this existential struggle. Remember Teddy Roosevelt in 1912 when he bolted the Republican Party? We we stand at Armageddon and we battle for the Lord. And that's kind of the, <laughs> the mindset. Well, uh, but there are some other Republicans who are saying, Hey, wait a minute. We've gone down this road three times in a row. We lost three times in a row. Maybe it's time to recalculate, right? That is is the divide. And in fact, uh, these results have been published, but the CNN polling unit has run them for me. And among the minority of Republicans who are most focused on beating Biden, uh, DeSantis leads. DeSantis leads Trump. And among those, perhaps not surprisingly, Mm. who say that, you know, uh, sharing your values is most important, Trump leads DeSantis. And, you know, this is going to be an important divide. I mean, electability historically has not been a huge factor in party primaries on either side. Um, But with Trump, it is so in your face. I mean, he is, you know, the likelihood is that by election day, by by the first caucus, he will in all likelihood face multiple indictments. And I can imagine for the voters who say, well, he is standing at Armageddon and battling for the Lord, it might not matter much. But for the other part of the party that's like after, especially after 22, already wondering if he can win, uh, I I think the events of the next year are likely to deepen their doubts about whether he's the best bet in 24. Yeah. So what was your take on, you've seen so many of these, we all have these candidates come, come and go and some are red hot and then suddenly they drop out. What was your take on DeSantis's first uh, attempt to run around the country and get a little national publicity. Is he ready for prime time? 
I think he could be, but he is not yet. And and he's not <laughs> he's not in a very specific way. I mean, it just feels to me like he is living under the glass in the pinball machine. I mean, that he is that he is someone who has uh, isolated himself to a, to a great degree so that he is communicating only within the conservative ecosystem, you know, the, the, the conservative information ecosystem. And um, I think is having kind of a, a difficult time speaking beyond that. And I, and I offer a few examples. I mean, when he was in Iowa and he was talking about the risk that if Democrats win again, the country will be living under a wokeocracy, right? I mean, I, if you're yeah. not watching Fox 14 hours a day, I think that's a little opaque about what, what, <laughs> what we're right. talking about. And even more fundamentally, uh, his decision to basically hug Trump on Ukraine and to oh, say yeah. that it is not a vital interest of the U.S. Um, I, there is no one in the White House, I can assure you, who is uh, worried about running against someone who says that this is not a vital interest of the U.S., that it was a mistake to be so invested mm -hmm. in the first place. Um, and, you know, he is someone who has enormous skill, clearly, at finding where the Republican, you know, finding the buttons that will energize the Republican base. Um, and as, as we talked about before, I think his core strategy is to offer Republican voters Trumpism without Trump. Um, but both of those episodes over the last few days strike me as someone who uh, just doesn't have a lot of muscle memory of talking to people outside of a Fox talk radio conservative echo chamber uh, kind of existence. Right. Not to mention the uh, three-finger pudding. Uh, uh, chocolate not to mention pudding. the pudding, the hasty pudding. I mean, <laughs> he, is, he is so, so eager to eat. Well, look, uh, look there, there are ways. I, you know, I went to see him at the Reagan Library uh, the other day when he gave his speech. And the first half of that speech, which is essentially updated Michael Dukakis, it's the Florida miracle. You know, Florida is doing yeah. so well economically and we've made the right calls in education. And as a result, so many people want to live there. That can be an appealing, you know, message for swing voters who are dissatisfied with Biden and dissatisfied with the economy. But that isn't the heart of the message. The heart of the message is that I am a culture warrior and I will fight this wokeocracy on every front. Mm -hmm. That's what got the biggest applause. And that's where I think he risks running into the same rut as Trump. I, you know, the, yeah. the, the assumption of, of Republicans who like DeSantis as a general election nominee, their assumption, Bill, is that the, the decisive swing voters like Trump policies, but don't like Trump personally. And that, I think, is not necessarily the, the whole story. I think there are a lot of things, a lot of social policy that Republicans are pushing that uh, voters um, in these swing areas, it's not just Trump. They don't like the policies. And, and the third thing I should have mentioned before is in addition to Ukraine and, um, uh, uh, you know, the wokeocracy, DeSantis is, is barreling toward a six-week ban on abortion, right? Right. So, Yes. Yeah. He's going to be carrying that into Oakland County, Michigan and mm -hmm. Montgomery County, Delaware and the suburbs of Phoenix, Phoenix and Maricopa. And I don't think that is a particularly sellable proposition. Now, I don't mean I, that doesn't necessarily guarantee he's going to lose. But it, it, all of these things are kind of adding to the risk that the swing voters who rejected Trump will many, if not all, most, 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 if not almost all of them could reject 
uh, DeSantis on the same ground that he represents a set of values that they just don't ascribe to. Okay, we've talked a lot about the Republican Party. Ron, we'll take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. When we come back, I want to ask you about the other side, Democrats and Joe Biden for 2024. We'll be right back. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work, taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back on the Bill Press Pod, uh, today's guest, Ron Brownstein. Of course, you know him, see him often on CNN as senior political analyst. He's also senior editor at The Atlantic, a longtime good friend. Uh, so uh, how do you assess the looking ahead of 2024, right? Would you rather be today on the Democratic side or the Republican side, given your chances? Um, on balance, slightly on the Democratic side, but they obviously have uh, some significant uh, challenges and headwinds mm -hmm. as well. Um, uh, the first is that, you know, we continue to see a large number of voters in polls questioning whether Biden is up to the job for another term. I mean, he, right. you know, this, is, this is deep into uncharted water. I mean, he would be in his mid 80s. Uh, he would be closer to 90 than 80 at the end of a second term. So, you know, is that against Trump? I don't think that's much of an issue against DeSantis or someone else who's younger, you know, Tim Scott, you know, in the, in the far case, um, you know, I think that could be some mm -hmm. voters could, could be hesitant. The bigger challenge is the uncertainty over the economy and the fact that so many Americans are still so down on the economy and the risk that uh, a recession, that the Fed could provoke a recession to try to break inflation that unfolds much later than Democrats hope. I mean, I, I remember talking to a, to a bunch, uh, to a group of kind of high ranking Democratic economic uh, former officials and thinkers, you know, and the general consensus was, that Biden needed a recession, a light recession to, uh, uh, you know, to start the day after the midterm election and to be over by the fall of 2023 and to have broken inflation along the way. And then you right. could have a Reagan-like 1984 
uh, morning in America, things are getting better since most political scientists believe it's not the absolute level of economic uh, uh, indicators that matters to voters. It's the trajectory. But Biden is now in this very uncertain position where the economy still seems fragile. Uh, the risk of a recession is still out there. People are still uneasy about inflation. And he's got the risk that if the Fed does go too far, especially with all the banking uh, uncertainty of the last you know couple of days, uh, and you have a recession that breaks out at Christmas of this year and is unfolding mm. through the first half of next year, that is not an ideal scenario. Democrats won, Bill, in the midterm, an unusually, or maybe an unprecedentedly high percentage of voters who were dissatisfied with the economy because they still couldn't trust Republicans with power, those voters. I don't think that's an experiment they want to repeat again in 2024. I don't think they want to go into an election where three quarters of the voters say the economy is only in fair or bad shape or poor shape um, and, 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 and count on the ability to win despite that. So I would say those are the two big uncertainties, how mm -hmm. um, voter, voters view his capacity and whether we come out of this period of uncertainty uh, about the economy before voters go to the polls in 24. Uh, and I want to circle back uh, very, just briefly to what a point you made in the first part of the program here, that Joe Biden, he is reaching out in many ways. People say he's going back to the middle already because he knows he doesn't have a primary, that he doesn't have to pick up many of the yeah. more of those blue collar Democrats. Right. I mean, he can get a, a point here, a point there, a point there. And that's all he needs. Right. Right. I mean, you know, the, both things are true, that Biden's enormous focus in all these different ways that we've talked about on improving the Democratic performance with non-college and older whites is not likely to, to make many gains. I mean, that is a really hard soil that he is trying yeah. to uh, furrow here. Um, but he doesn't have to make very large gains. I mean, even two or three or four points better among non-college whites makes Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin much more comfortable. If you look at what Whitmer did uh, in Michigan mm -hmm. relative to Biden among non-college whites, she was a few points better. It wasn't vastly better. Uh, but given how much antipathy toward the Republicans there now are in these white-collar communities, a little better among non-college whites meant she went by, I think, was it 12 points? Um, yeah. So Biden doesn't, you know, prob probably does not have the prospects of doing much better. But as you say, he does not have to do much better, even a small change, as long as the other half is true, that the um, concern and antipathy about Republicans does turn out those uh, core Democratic, modern core Democratic coalition of young people, college whites, people of color. Um, you know, if if you meet that predicate, his focus mm -hmm makes a lot of sense, but no one should have any illusions. I mean, he is taking a risk by orienting himself so completely toward that task that there really isn't a, necessarily a vast amount that he can personally do to excite that coalition. He's got to rely on other Democrats and especially the Republican nominee. All right. Finally, and I promise it because I know your time is tight. Uh, you and I have talked about this. There's this dark cloud hanging over there called No Labels. Uh, a group that says they're going to put a third party candidate, their party, uh, a centrist on the ballot in every 50 states. Is that a real threat? Uh, and uh, who would it hurt? Uh, they have money. And uh, I would assume with that money, they will get ballot access in some places. And I think this is a on balance would hurt Biden more than 
DeSantis or Trump because it's a safety valve for center-right voters who cannot support Trump, certainly, and may in the end feel that they can't even support DeSantis uh, because of the, the social and cultural positions that they are taking. I mean, this, this is a group that has been enormously controversial about whether it really is in any way kind of a centrist group or is it kind of a stalking horse for more uh, conservative mm-hmm. financial forces in particular. Um, and uh, it is an area of potential mischief that uh, that on balance would probably hurt Democrats more than than Republicans, I think, in, in, in 24. Now, you know, it might vary some from state to state, but I would think the audience for uh, a no labels type candidate is primarily going to be college educated voters who probably lean Republican on economics and lean Democrat on social policy and certainly on democracy. And this provides them a way. And I think, you know, if push came to shove, most of those voters would vote for Biden over Trump, certainly, and probably even over DeSantis. And this gives them a way out. Uh, It gives them a third way, a third choice. And I think that probably hurts Biden more. Yeah. Okay. Ron Brownstein, so good to catch up with you. Uh, It's going to be already an interesting two years and two more interesting ones coming up, even more interesting. And uh, nobody sees the landscape better than you. Thanks uh, for all you do. And thanks for taking the time for us on the Bill Press Pod. Bill, always great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's podcast with Ron Brownstein. Uh, Nobody like him. He knows politics better than anybody I know. Of course, you can read him in The Atlantic and see him often on CNN. And we'll be back on Friday for our Reporters Roundtable to take a look back at all the news of the week from Washington, D.C. Don't miss it. Have a good week. In the meantime, we'll see you Friday for the Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod.